Hello and welcome to the seventh and final episode of the first series of Miradas, a podcast on the current affairs and culture of Latin America with Laurie Blair and myself, John Bartlett. It's taken us a little while to get this one together, but we promise it'll be worth the wait as we start off with a look ahead to Argentina's election on the 27th of October with Ducket Frontier's Southern Cone analyst Alex Schober. I spoke to Alex on the phone and he gave us some fascinating insights into the economic situation as all but extinguished incumbent President Mauricio Macri's hopes of re-election. Laurie then spoke to Dr. Emilio M. Bruner, a professor of tropical ecology at the University of Florida. They talked about the recent spate of fires across the Amazon and elsewhere in South America and discussed the idea that a critical mass of deforestation could soon be reached in the region, as well as the effects of President Jair Bolsonaro's cuts on the scientific community in Brazil. Finally, I sat down in the sunshine in Santiago with Chilean folklorist and rock singer Camila Moreno. We discussed how her career began, comparisons drawn between her work and that of her predecessors, and finally the role of Chilean artists as public and political figures. There's a bit of wind that interrupts the recording at times, not to mention a determined child on a nearby seesaw, but hopefully the sound quality holds overall. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and please do get in touch on social media or via email with your thoughts on our first series. So joining me on the phone is Alex Schober of Ducket Frontier, who's a Southern Cone analyst who looks mostly at Argentina and, of course, the other countries in the Southern Cone as well, and Latin America more widely. Uh, the two of us originally met uh, around my around my dining table in Santiago more than a month ago now, uh, and just, we've had a few issues trying to get a, a second interviewee together for this uh, for this particular episode. What we talked about then is is no longer as relevant as it was then, shall we say? So, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, and yeah, you're very correct that any time we have any Argentina analysis, it gives sort of out of date with a month or two, which has been uh, almost a curse of my my work over the last year or so. But it is what it is in Argentina. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm not uh, not envious at all of the of the analysts of uh, of Argentine economics. Um, so of course we've got a we've got an election coming up, uh, general election, presidential election, on the 27th of October this year. Uh, so when this episode goes out, it'll only be a couple of weeks away. Um, it's it's interesting then to look to look at what we talked about before and kind of talk about how the situation has changed since those primaries, uh, which of course um, Alberto Fernandez, who's the kind of front runner in the election, uh, stormed to victory in those. Can we just kind of look back over the course of this year? How do you how do you assess this um, the, the kind of economic situation in Argentina with particular reference to the the election that's uh, that's coming up? Sure. So Argentina has been in the recession since the second quarter of last year. Uh, we don't need to get too much into the details, but basically the country's had two peso crises um, in 2018, which increased inflation. Uh, so you have inflation eating into salaries, which has been a significant problem from a consumption standpoint. And then you have interest rates, which are probably the world's highest right now, which uh, eats into investment. So really you have sort of this... Uh, this double-edged uh, economic downturn. And since April, things were starting to stabilize a little bit, uh, almost like a month-on-month basis, almost entirely because of the agriculture sector. Inflation was starting to go down a little bit. Um, things you know, were directionally going in the right direction. And I think that pollsters and us analysts underestimated how hard the real economy was being hit by this recession. So I mentioned salaries earlier. You know, 
the fact that salaries have been contracting for over a year and a half in Argentina and many Argentines have a lot less purchasing power than they had, even at the beginning of the Macri administration, really uh, speaks significant volumes. You know, we have that saying in English that it's the economy stupid, and I really do think that at the, uh, the, the ballot box in August when we had those primaries, uh, inflation and the loss of salaries was really top of mind. Yeah, sure. And and when we spoke before as well, we um you, you came out with some really some fascinating data uh, on the kind of the, the social indicators and the the kind of you know the day to day effects on Argentines and on their wallets of um of the crashes. I think you were saying in the the two thousand and one two thousand and two economic crisis, you know, people were seeing that their kind of savings were were kind of slashed in half. You know, one day to the next, it was almost overnight the uh, the change. Are we seeing something kind of along those lines at the moment? And kind of what what is the kind of social situation in Argentina that you can really see on the street? So don't get me wrong, the social situation is definitely bad. Uh, however, I would steer caution to anyone who tries to compare right now to 2001 and 2002. Uh, just because in 2001, 2002, you had unemployment of around a quarter of the population. Uh, the economy contracted by around 10%, which is significantly worse than it is right now. But that isn't to say that the situation right now isn't concerning. It already is bad. Uh, unemployment is definitely to continue to increase uh, by the end of the year. It's already above 10%, which is you know very high by any standard. Uh, poverty has increased uh, quite a bit under Macri's watch, uh, which is something that he ironically strove out to combat and eradicate. He even said, Pobreza Cero, zero poverty, was his, one of his campaign slogans back in 2015, and here we are, where poverty is mm-hmm. higher. So, you know, it has a lot to do with the inflation factor and salaries and the fact that businesses are just um, unwilling to hire more people based on, you know, low demand and everything along those lines. But, yeah, the social situation is, is rather dire right now. And the sort of even more unfortunate circumstances that Argentina's debt situation really does not allow the future administration, no matter who it is, to... Uh, effectively spin their way out of this this poverty increasing situation. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a pretty rocky couple of months and probably two years in Argentina for uh, a lot of these social indicators to reverse themselves and start to get back, back on the path of uh, looking a lot brighter. But mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, that that is the circumstance in Argentina. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of bright spots uh, in this uh, this murky, clouded uh, outlook right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, fascinating. And the and so if you if we kind of zoom out a little bit and take a uh, take a step back on the on the Macri years, uh, since he was elected or he kind of he, he won the runoff in in 2015 uh, and and came to power, he was you know kind of heralded by by some sectors as a as somebody who might be able to save the economy, and obviously um, his his opponent Alberto Fernandez is now running on uh, the same ticket as ex president Cristina Fernandez, uh, who was was a president that Macri took over from. Um, how would you how would you assess overall the Macri administration's uh, handling of the economy? How would you assess the kind of policy tools that he's used? Has have there been any any that have actually had a, a significant effect, and or has it been mismanaged? You know, kind of in its entirety. It's, it's definitely not a black and white answer. I mean, the general assessment is that his economic model failed. Um, it's it's simply put by the numbers that the economy is in a worse position now than it was when he took over. 
But I think the analysis needs to be a little bit more nuanced. And, you know, we can sit around and ask ourselves where did he go wrong? Where did he get unlucky? I, I think the, the couple salient uh, conclusions come out of this. And the first one is that a lot of, you know, macroeconomists and uh, people from the IMF and a lot of people who are, you know, investment managers in the U.S. would like to see Macri have a lot more of a almost shock therapy approach towards the Argentine economy when he took over because he really did inherit quite a mess uh, from a balance of payments perspective. But he also had a minority in Congress. Uh, no non-parent as president has finished his, his or her term since the beginning of uh, this wave of democracy in Argentina. Um, so really, like, if Macri had to choose either political advancements and being able to get more done versus uh, doing more drastic measures to try to turn around the economy by, you know, two or three years. And he picked sort of a mix of both. And unfortunately, that mix of both failed. And patients ran out by both Argentines and international investors. So there's that. And then we're talking about mistakes. You know, there were several times, at least with the central bank, that they they had their own targets and the government wanted uh, the central bank to have their own inflation targets. This happened in December 2017, which was sort of the, the X marks the spot on when the economy and inflation in Argentina started to go a little bit south. And then there was another instance when Macri got the IMF deal, and there are many people who think that maybe Macri should have gotten an IMF deal at the very beginning of his presidency. But nevertheless, I digress. He ended up getting the extension of the IMF deal, and when that happens, um, he basically went on a YouTube address to the population and said that we need more money now, which made people think that uh, is Macri hiding something about you know the state's financial situation? Uh, you know what should we really expect? Uh, over the next couple of days and weeks, and that is what caused the second major peso collapse in 2018. So really, mm-hmm. there's been communication errors by Macri and his team. Uh, he's had a bit of bad luck. The drought last year didn't help. Um, and he also had a really uh, fragile political situation. So I think those are really the three reasons why the economic model failed. And I guess it kind of goes down to your ideology of whether or not you think that uh, it was just Macri himself or kind of just a combination of you know badly timed events and miscalculations mm-hmm. it's fascinating and were there any external factors as well in terms of the kind of the global economic situation that had an effect on on macri himself well so that goes down to the the, the bad luck factor is that last year at the beginning of 2018 uh, in march and april when you had i'm uh, sorry uh, april and may when you had this risk-off sentiments happen uh, toward a, towards emerging markets. Uh, the Fed was, you know, feared to be hiking interest rates too fast, um, and that's actually was a major trigger in what caused Argentina's first uh, major peso depreciation last year. Mm-hmm. So that didn't help, uh, and the drought didn't help. That wasn't external per se, but it dealt with the trade balance. And then this year. Uh, the prices of soy have been very low compared to several years in the past. So that also didn't help recovery prospects. So the external environment hasn't been great, but I also think that the, the current situation of Argentina is you know, at, at least 75 to 80% domestic. So... Okay, and if we now if we look ahead to the election, which is obviously the kind of the uh, the kind of tipping point that's coming up, 
Um, many have written off Macri. He's obviously running for re-election against Fernandez, who I mentioned earlier, running on the same ticket as, uh, as Christina, the ex-president. Uh, so it's basically this situation that we've arrived at before, which is kind of Peronism against, well, non-Peronism, in effect. Um, how do you assess Alberto Fernandez, who's the, the likely, if not, we won't say guaranteed winner, but the likely winner uh, that a lot of people are kind of touting at the moment? His economic policies and what he's suggested so far, what, how do, what do you make of them? So I think a lot of people were afraid of Fernandez when he first got uh, appointed weirdly as president by his vice presidential candidate, which I, I believe is one of the first times in world history that that's actually happened. But, you know, his vice presidential candidate, Christina Kirchner herself, who was the former president before Macri, uh, she does not exactly have a great economic reputation, at least from, uh, you know, external watchers of the economy and uh, her management of the overall situation in the country. She was pretty uh, confrontational with Western institutions and really almost every other uh, uh, major country for that matter. Mm-hmm. But Fernandez himself is definitely more of a moderate actor than Christina. He, def- he comes from more of the traditional uh, realm of Peronism, which, of course, doesn't really have a major ideological leaning. But uh, he has the support of a lot of the governors who are more moderate in nature. In fact, a lot of them don't like Christina at all. And then you have, on the other side of the spectrum, likely majorities in both Congress, uh, both houses of Congress. So Fernandez could very easily be his own man. And if you follow the rhetoric, if you follow his, his history, which is probably the best uh, recipe for, or best indicator of who he'll actually be, it seems like he really will be some sort of moderate uh, actor with, uh, with his own backing and his own support. Even though Christina's there and a lot of people fear that she's going to pull the strings, uh, this has happened several times in Argentina's past where the president ends up coming to power under someone else's watch or someone else's push. Uh, Nestor Kirchner, ironically, is sort of the, the best example of this, and Nestor ended up making his own name for himself in a year of being in power. Uh, obviously, Kirchnerismo exists today, so he was quite successful in that regard. Um, but overall, I do think he's going to be pretty moderate, but the real question has been, uh, what are his economic plans? Because he's been pretty all over the place uh, with, with suggesting what he's suggesting. Um, we don't really know if there's any uh, concrete way for him to uh, continue to receive the benefit of the doubt from financial markets because he's going to need the buy-in from financial markets or Argentina is going to be kind of left out for dry. So time's to tell. I think right now it's all part of an electoral strategy to keep you know, the Kirchner voters at bay. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Overall, I, I think that he is a little bit more moderate. And honestly, the more optimistic view of this is that with all of that, Governor and Congress, Congress supports, and if he does have a moderate economic plan that's really credible, he could end up being a more successful governor than Macri ever was, mostly just because of that, that strong political, uh, political backing. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how, how Fernandez's uh, economic policy crystallises if he does indeed win the election. So, Alex, thank you so much for, for joining us and we're looking forward to the election and seeing what happens. Thank you very much. Looking forward to seeing what the, what the aftermath is too. Okay, so uh, I'm joined over the phone uh, by Emilio Embruna 
who is a professor of tropical ecology and Latin American studies at the University of Florida. Um, Emilio's research focuses on deforestation in tropical ecosystems, especially the Amazon and the Cerrado, uh, and also Latin American science uh, and science policy. So obviously topics which are really in the news uh, at the moment. Um, it's great to have you, Emilio. Um, just, just to kind of jump right in, obviously we've seen uh, pretty devastating fires over much of South America in recent months, uh, greater in many cases than in, in previous years. Um, you're someone who studies the, these regions closely. What do you think are some of the most common misconceptions going around? You know, what are people, what are, what are the media, you know, myself, people like me included, what, what are we getting wrong about, about these fires? Well, first of all, thanks a lot for the invitation. It's wonderful to, to be here with you. Um, I think that, you know, for me, it's a, it's a little, I'll confess I'm, I'm a little flabbergasted as to why this is the year that got so much attention. Um, you know, I think that the, the fires are worse than they were in previous years. Mm -hmm. um, I think the main thing that people have gotten wrong is the focus on the fires themselves, mm. right? And, and really, the, the fires are a symptom of an underlying cause, which is deforestation. Mm -hmm. okay. So fire is not natural in the Amazonian forest ecosystem. Fire is natural in lots of other forests, but not in this particular one. Uh, I think the main thing that I've seen uh, the media or others getting wrong is, first of all, it's very commonly pitched as the Amazon being the lungs of the planet, uh, you know, producing a lot of oxygen. Mm -hmm. They don't. They're not a major source of oxygen for us. Um, I, I think that's a rhetorical hook that's used a lot by the media, but it, it's not really scientifically accurate. Um, the other thing is the is the perception that it's the forest itself that's on fire. Mm. There are fires in some of the forest areas, but a lot of these fires are in places that have been previously cleared or that have been recently cleared. Mm -hmm. And that's because fire is the way that landowners, after they clear the forest or if they're preparing previously cleared land for agriculture, they burn to get some of those nutrients back in or to get rid of the trees that they've just felled. And so I think the public perception is that a lot of these forests are, I mean, a lot of these fires are in the forest itself. We don't really know how many fires are in the forest. Mm. Most of these fires that have been identified are in areas that have been previously cleared. That's not to suggest that that's not a serious thing because the uptick in fires uh, is a signal that we've had an uptick in deforestation, a pretty sizable one. And the other thing is that fires, even in previously deforested areas, can get into the forest. They sure. can get into the margins of forest and slowly work their way in. And if, a lot of research has shown us that once an area of forest burns, say on the edge of forest that's adjacent to a cattle pasture, then the recovery in that forest can be a lot slower, especially if you get a second fire that spreads. Okay. Right? And even small fires in the understory of an Amazonian forest can be really deadly for the trees there because they didn't evolve with those adaptations to deal with fire. So those are, okay. I think, the main misconceptions. Um, th that's not to minimize the importance of the fires, only that I think that we need to shift a little bit about how we think about them and their impacts. Sure. So, so in a way, we're, we're dealing with, you know, a, a symptom of a, of a kind of bigger problem here. Obviously, it's very eye-catching to see to see these kind of, you know, uh, big columns of smoke and flame. But it's in a way that's it's the kind of unsexy, uh, gradual uh, business of deforestation, logging, uh, what have you, which is what people should be more more concerned about. Well, I think the underlying cause, right, which is the deforestation, which, um, it, you know, over the course of 12 or 15 years in the two prior presidential administrations, uh, you know, deforestation gone down tremendously from 
the peak in about 2003 of 27,000 square kilometers in just one year, mm-hmm. all the way down in 2012 to 4,600 square kilometers. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2018, it increased to 7,500 square kilometers, more or less, which is about a 65% increase over that over that low in 2012. And so, um, while I'm, I'm grateful we're not at the high deforestation rates that we were in the late 90s and early 2000s, our baseline should be that really low rate of deforestation, and we've seen it increase tremendously, and that's something we really need to be worried about. Sure. I mean, you know, obviously that there's a kind of complex factors going on here, and as you said, this this problem didn't begin in this year, although it has been been smaller in recent years. Uh, to, to what extent do you think that the new administration in, in Brazil that came into power this year, that of that of Jair Bolsonaro, is, is kind of is responsible for, for, for what's happened this summer? Is, is, do you think we can draw a kind of clear a clear link there? Yeah, I, I think um, they're almost entirely responsible. Um, so again, fires are a land management tool that people have. Um, imported into the Amazon. So there were there are always going to be fires mm. in the Amazon in these areas where you've got agriculture. Mm. What you have when Bolsonaro came in uh, is, first of all, all the way from his campaign forward, he made it very clear that he felt that the Amazon should be open for business, yeah. especially mining and agriculture, right? And second, um, you know, in addition to kind of direct policies like degazetting in protected areas um, or providing incentives for um, activities are going to be clearing the forest. There's also indirect ways in which his administration has promoted deforestation, and that's by looking the other direction. That's by creating a culture of impunity and making it clear that um, people who illegally clear land or set fire to land are not going to be uh, punished for it or fined for it. It's by reallocating resources that are used for enforcement, financial resources, human resources, equipment, reallocating those things um, into other parts of the country or other ministries so they're not available mm-hmm. in order to do the enforcement actions which are on the book. Brazil has really strong environmental laws. The issue has never been one of legislation. It's been one of enforcement mm-hmm. um, and one of impunity. And that's where we are again. He's created this air of impunity. And it's not just for clearing and it's not just for burning, but it's actually um, in many ways also for the violence and the intimidation of indigenous communities, of environmental activists, of environmental journalists, and um, and that I attribute um, that I put squarely at his feet. Oh, sure, definitely. I mean, I, I was traveling through through uh, through the Amazon uh, late last year, sort of you know in between the first and second round of, of the election, and even then, people there were sort of saying we're feeling an uptick in in this in these kind of threats and these kind of intimidation. You know, we're sort of scared to leave our communities. We're scared to go to college or go to school or whatever because of, you know, these these kind of threats. Um, so I think that's that, that, that's a kind of a really important point there. Um, and one, one thing that, that's kind of often been talked about, uh, and I think um, I, I, my sense is it's positive that this, this is kind of getting out there a bit more, is this idea of a, of a tipping point uh, in the Amazon, the idea that, uh, you know, we've reached a certain level of deforestation and if we go a little bit further, we, we might... Begin this kind of uh, um, irreversible process where where the kind of forest begins to sort of degrade and and, and change. I kind of wonder, you know, could could you sort of kind of ex- explain that, you know, better, you know, than, than what I've done there? You know, what is this tipping point that people are sort of, you know, beginning to talk about more, and and how how serious is it? You know, what does what does this kind of mean uh, for for South America's climate and indeed the the world's climate? Yeah, I think people don't really appreciate how much. Um... Uh, the Amazon provides, right, 
in terms of other kinds of ecosystem services. And, and this includes for the people there, by the way. I mean, we, we talk about the Amazon, or, uh, you know, I've been reading about the Amazon, and it's, you know, and it's always about the forest and the animals and things like that. But we've got to remember, there's a tremendous number of people that live in the Amazonian region. I used to live in the city of Manaus. Manaus alone has over 2 million people, right, mm. living in it. So, um, you know, so we're, we're not talking about a, you know, plants and animals. We're talking about people as well. Um, and, and I don't think what people appreciate is just how much of the water, the rainfall that is um, produced in the region comes from the trees themselves. So through the process of evapotranspiration, plants um, give off a lot of moisture. They put it up into the atmosphere. That then gets recirculated back down as rain. And so you get this, this moisture that's produced actually by the trees as part of the process of their photosynthesis and growth. And if you cut down the trees, then you lose this source mm. of water, of rain. And if you lose enough of that rain, and estimates I've seen are you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or so percent of the rainfall that, that falls in parts of the Amazon region is produced by the trees themselves, right? Mm. And so if you cut down all that moisture, um, you can imagine that what losing 20% of your rainfall will do to an ecosystem that's accustomed to high levels of rain. And so the tipping point idea is that if we continue deforesting um, up to a certain percentage of forest gone, then we're going to lose so much rainfall that you're no longer going to be able to sustain an Amazonian forest of the kind we have now. And instead, it's going to move to being a more open, scrubby vegetation dominated by the kinds of plants that are capable of tolerating drier environments with less rainfall. And... Mm. Uh, and so that is going to um, be a radical change in the Amazon because it's potentially irreversible. And we don't know exactly what percentage of forest needs to be cleared in order for that to happen. The estimates, based on kind of the best simulation modeling that's out there, are somewhere between about 25 and 40 percent on the extreme right. uh, external boundary of forest that needs to be cleared. Uh, here's the thing. To date, in the Brazilian Amazon, we have cleared about 20% of the original extent of the Brazilian Amazon since um, about 1970 or so. Right, yeah. Okay? So we've got 80% of the forest left, which means that the tipping point kicks in somewhere around 25% uh, of the forest gone. We're not that far away from it. And this is especially important along this arc of deforestation that we've got in the southern Amazon. Um, because that's where that frontier of deforestation is expanding. I see. Okay, and 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 that that figure of sort of twenty to forty percent that refers to the to the entire kind of biome. With we're also talking, you know, Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, etc. Or is or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the I mean, this is where you know people's language can get pretty loose. We have the you know the Amazon um, forest, uh, the Amazon River Basin. We have mm. the Amazon forest ecosystem, and then, of course, there's the Brazilian Amazon. Sure. Um, we focus a lot on Brazil because it's 70% of the Amazonian forest is within Brazil's boundaries. So what Brazil does really matters in terms of Amazonian conservation. Yeah. We've cleared about 20% of the Amazon forest across all the different Amazonian countries. We've also cleared about 20% within the Brazilian Amazon. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, you know... Brazil's the big player, so if, you know you have a lot of deforestation in Brazil. That's going to drive us closer to that sure. amount of forest that's removed. Of course, yeah. I mean, as, as a side note, I feel like the, 
these kind of geographical distinctions are, are in a way what what's held up a bit of the, the coverage and the, and the analysis you know worldwide people are almost catching up with the fact that okay well you know the, the chiquitano that's kind of kind of amazonia or not quite or or you know um you know we need to bear in mind other countries are also have part of the part of the part of the amazon as well or, you know or what role does the, does, does the cerrado play in this it's kind of interesting that you know that people are having to kind of get their heads around this which is positive oh, but it's yeah. but it's but it's kind I, of in a way it's quite late it's entirely on brazil's fires but bolivia was burning you know too Right, mm. um, and Bolivia is a country that uh, just doesn't have the financial resources. Um, not that not that Brazil is dealing with it either, but I mean, it, you know, then it's a it's an even more challenging problem when you've got um, a country that doesn't necessarily have the financial resources to deal with the fire as well. Sure. And of course, uh, a lot of this uh, got into the kind of broader geopolitical issues, which is part of the Amazon forest ecosystem is contained within French Guiana, which is a French overseas department, and mm-hmm. so it is considered part of France, right? So when um, you know when uh, Macron said that um, you know the Amazon is ours, he was correct in saying that, in that it is there's a small piece of the Amazon which is within French territory. Sure. Uh, but the way that that was interpreted by Bolsonaro and others is that you know this is just one more attempt of foreign intervention or internationalization of the Amazon, you know, to use the term ours in reference to the Amazon, you know, how dare you, um, yeah. you know, and, and so this, you know, this spawns the kind of geopolitical issues surrounding these, these forests as well. Well, of course, you know, the people, well, the, the current administration in particular with its kind of, you know, strong roots in, in a strong connection to the, the military and, 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 you know, that period of Brazil's history, the, the kind of dictatorship seems to be very obsessed with this idea of, of protecting Brazil's sovereignty there. Um, I, I just kind of wonder, you know, so we've, we've, we can, you know, we have this tipping point approaching. In your experience, you know, with someone who's, who, who's, who's, you know, obviously working with people on the front lines of this, do you think that can, that can be avoided? You know, are you, are you, are you optimistic about, about, you know, the region and the world's ability to try and to sort of steer away from this? And if it does happen, you know, how, how, how catastrophic a change are we? Are we? You know, are we, are we talking about here? Um, I think my optimism depends on what day you ask me. Um, <laughs> but but I have to be optimistic about it. Um, right. I, I you know I don't want to have to prepare for a future in which um, the world has been so radically changed uh, because of this. I think it's really important to remember that there are uh, organizations. Um, on the ground, there are researchers on the ground, there are indigenous communities on the ground that are doing everything they can to prevent us from getting to this point. Mm. Um, they're uh, either uh, implementing in, uh, programs to do reforestation and forest regeneration, which can be very, very effective, even passive regeneration. You know, the forest can recover relatively quickly and with a high amount of the original biomass and even a fair amount of the biodiversity that's there within, mm. say, you know, 50 to 80 years, um, uh, there are there there are active and social movements in places like Brazil or Bolivia working very hard to ensure um, that the uh, integrity of indigenous reserves or the land, t- land title that's been given to people is maintained. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there are you know the the Amazon Fund and Red Plus these you know these big international frameworks that have been put together that are investments in ecosystem services provided by keeping the forest standing mm. are really valuable, right? I mean, the Norwegian government committed a billion dollars to the Amazon fund uh, 
as payment for services rendered from keeping those forests standing. Mm. And uh, you know, Bolsonaro's government uh, may may turn their back on on that kind of financial um, incentives for offsetting deforestation um, for for whatever reasons they're doing it. But he won't be president forever. Um, and you know, that that's a lot of money for governments to to turn their backs on. Well, so yeah, I yeah. have to be optimistic, uh, but it's a combination of both um, the financial incentives that have been put in place, um, an active, um, you know, active social movements, uh, including those with indigenous communities and others, um, and mm-hmm. uh, and especially a realization, um, you know, hopefully not too late, uh, that this is something that's really important and going to affect us across the world. Sure, of course, and and you know, obviously your 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 other area of research is is looking at Latin American science, looking at the networks and looking at the, the frameworks in which um, science in the region is kind of is, is carried out. Um, I, I've recently been 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 working on and researching something to do with archaeology in, in Brazil and in, in the Amazon. And, and people I've spoken to there are incredibly concerned and really, really worried because in recent months, the administration in Brazil has really taken a, an axe to scientific funding it seems you know we're talking about cuts of up to sort of 70 80 percent in some areas and and in particular the support for kind of graduate undergraduate researchers you know that that sort of that sort of new generation of scientists seems to be sort of having the plug pulled on it um what, what's your kind of feeling with what's got with with what's happening there you know talking to your to your colleagues in the region you know how concerned are they and, and what's you know what's sort of at stake if we're talking about pulling the rug out 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 from brazil's science yeah, unfortunately, this is an area in which I'm a lot less optimistic um, uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, I, I think uh, people don't appreciate that only about five years ago, Brazil was on the cusp of basically becoming the next um, academic, uh, you know, scientific superpower. Right? Wow. Uh, they were making massive investments in sending students abroad um, to do uh, either their PhDs or master's thesis or maybe do an exchange program in a foreign laboratory or a foreign library for a year and then return back to continue their PhDs inside of Brazil. Everybody around the world wanted to set up collaborations with Brazilian institutions. It's a really, really robust, really good academic community um, from you know the biophysical sciences through to the social sciences and the humanities. Mm. Really, really top-notch researchers. And in a very short time period, what we're starting to see is a tremendous brain drain from Brazil, people leaving um, the country for institutions abroad uh, because they don't see a research future in Brazil. You know, the the big news that really scared everybody was that the Ministry of Science and Technology might not be able to pay the fellowships that it had already committed to recipients in Brazil, sure. right? So we were looking at potentially, I think it was 80,000 or so, or so fellowship recipients mm. that were going to lose their scholarships, masters and PhD students. Okay? Sure. Um, and while it looks like they maybe reconfigured things to be able to pay those fellowship recipients for the next couple of months, the proposal for next year's science and technology uh, funding for uh, CNPQ, right, which mm-hmm. would be to, you know, SF or NSERC or something like that. Sure. Is that you know the, the fellowships are being restored. They they put those back because they got a lot of attention, right? So they're they're committed, assuming they were to get the funding, to fully funding those fellowships um, in the coming fiscal year. But they're reducing the amount of funding available for research 
by almost 90% mm. from $31 million um, dollars down to $4 million. $4 million for research funding mm. for new grants for a country like Brazil is, is inconceivable, sure. right? I mean, it's, um, I mean, that's, I don't know, that's maybe the fourth of the budget of, you know, the latest Adam Sandler movie. Right. <laughs> oh god yeah you know more cop or whatever yeah and it's absurd. and it's crazy because obviously the, 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 this is you know like you say it's you know to say nothing of the scientific ability of the country and, it, and its kind of prowess it's one of the world's hugest countries one of the world's most populous countries you know uh there's so much that 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 you know that could and, and arguably should be should be done there And it's kind of ironic, but I mean, we're seeing a, you know, that there's this discourse about, you know, universities and researchers and science has to be profitable and has to be entrepreneurial. And we're seeing this elsewhere in the world as well, in the UK, in the US and beyond. But obviously, as you say, these places, these places are already in a, in a far, you know, greater sense, turning a profit. It might not be as simple, as simple as, you know, put in X amount of cash and see X, Y amount come out. But, but obviously there is, there is a huge kind of, you know, benefit there to having universities. Um, I, I think, okay. Just, just, just finally, because we're we're running out of time, I'm going to limit you to a sort of a, a one minute answer on this one. You know, where else apart from Brazil do you see the sort of bright spots in 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 Latin American science? You know, where are you kind of excited by 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 kind of what they're doing and what kind of projects and fields are you kind of you know uh, most interested in? Well, 
Well, I'm still very much excited by Brazil because Brazil has very resourceful scientists. They have scientists in Latin America tend to be very efficient. So even with less money, they, they often turn out to be more productive per dollar invested in science than researchers in places like Canada, the U.S., or the U.K. Sure. Um, Bolivia, uh, Bolivia has a really good community of scientists working on forest dynamics mm. and long-term forest growth. About 30 years ago, they established a large series of permanent forest plots, which have become critical for the study of, of climate change and, and forest dynamics. And Chile and Argentina are also two communities of scientists that are really, really good. They've had much more, you know, even if lower stable funding, and especially in things like astronomy and physics, mm. those are two uh, scientific communities uh, that are real players on the world stage, in part because they're locations where lots of astronomers want to go. That's where you've got a lot of the great telescopes to of do course. some of the cutting edge astronomical research. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I was lucky enough to visit Elma and Paranel last year, and you know, obviously, absolutely, you know, incredible places there in the in the Atacama Desert. Um, well, well, listen, that, that, that's about all we've got time for, and unfortunately, um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be putting a few links to some of the things that you've that you've mentioned, plus a few other things in the in the show notes as well. Um, but uh, Professor Emilio M. Bruna, thanks very much for your time. Hey, absolutely. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. Right, so we're in a park in Santiago with Camila Moreno, the Chilean singer, uh, folk singer, rock, uh, some electronic music as well, and you're taking your experimental and beautiful brand of music across the world and throughout Chile. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, it's lovely to be able to speak to you as well on Chile's National Day, so we've got quite a yes. lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first time I saw you, I saw you speak at the Tienda Nacional here in Santiago, which uh-huh. is a kind of cultural institution, as uh, so we've just been talking about before we started recording. Uh, you talked about some of your songs, and, and you played some songs as well from Panquea, yes. your latest uh, latest music, which we'll talk about uh, a uh-huh. bit later on. But you also told the story of how you were signed, or the, the, the kind of the day that you uh, you went across Santiago to, to meet up with somebody who then kind of yeah. got you into into recording. Can you tell that story? And what yes. Happened? Yeah, th- this story, it's about... Um, I don't know how to say it, but it was like a, a magazine that uh, came with with an announcement that it said we are looking for Bjork singers, and it was a very old school like magazine because it it, it doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm. and and I, I I get really pissed about it because I was like Bjork already exists, so I sent this email with uh, not good words on it. And they, they told me, like, uh, I, I, we like your attitude. Please send your material. And I was 17 years old. I didn't have any material. Um, and it was, like, Julieta Venegas songs with some Bjork songs, some P.G. Harvey songs, like, with me singing along. It was very horrible. <laughs> and, and they told me that I, I, I won. So they told me, okay, we meet in the National Library. Uh, I, I said, well, uh, I, how are we going to recognize us, ourselves? And they said, okay, I will bring a flower. And I brought a flower and, and I, I thought like, oh, please, uh, let it be a good person, you know? <laughs> and this man uh, came to me and he said, oh, Camila, yeah, we have to go to my pool. Like, really far away, far away. and I was 17 I was on my school clothes yeah. take the bus with this uh, person that I didn't know and we arrived to, to my pool and and we meet a person who was 
uh, dressed in black and with black glasses <laughs> and it was all very weird and very and very exciting for me and for my age and doing these crazy adventures and and this man Gerardo Figueroa it's like a very well-known man in the electroacoustic music yeah. in the in that, this world and he recorded in this kind of machine mm -hmm. uh, my first songs yeah That's the story, how I recorded my first songs uh, with some weird man that I knew in, in this bus going to my pool, mm -hmm. this man. And Pangea Volume 2, Pangea Volume 2, the second part of this multi-project, like artistic, multidisciplinary, no sé, I don't know how to say multidisciplinary. it. Multidisciplinary. Yeah, multidisciplinary. Um, Pangea Volume 2, it's um, like, um, I don't know to say, uh, archivos, art, a recopilatorio. Yeah, it's, uh, right. it's like when you find a fossil. fossil. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so I went and I searched for all the songs that it didn't went on any, any record before, but they, they exist, but they didn't... Uh, uh, They are not in any album or anything. So mm -hmm. I make this and I we rescue this very strange uh, recording of my very very first song. I, I mean, it's the very first song that I that I composed when I was 17, mm -hmm. and it, my, the guitar is out of tune. My voice is out of tune. The the record is awful. It's awful. But it's really I think now for me. After like more than 15 years, it's like, I don't know, it's a treasure, you yeah. know, for me. And I think for some of the fans will be too. Yeah. Uh, so that's how, the, that's the link between the work that I'm doing now and the, this story. Yeah, so, and I think we'll, we'll talk a bit more kind of at the end about kind of punk here and, and what you're doing there. Because I mean, when I saw you speak that time, you were playing stuff from Volume One, which is already out. That's the kind of live mm -hmm. version. I mm -hmm. think the studio ones where you're yeah. what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, but just to give kind of our listeners a bit of a sense of your of your sound, your music, and uh, and what you're doing. I mean, of course, I'm not the first person to say this, but the kind of the links with Violetta Bada are quite are quite apparent. I mean, she's uh, for those that don't know, the kind of you know a legendary kind of folklore singer and an artist. Um, Uh, from Chile who kind of went all up and down the country kind of recovering pieces of, yes. of music and old stories and kind of oral tradition from uh, from different people around Chile. Mm. I mean, how, what do you think, firstly, of these comparisons? And secondly, kind of how would you describe the work that you do now? I think uh, Violeta Barra, uh, yeah, it was not very comfort, com comfortable for me because mm. at the beginning, because I felt she was like a very big mountain and a very big artist and I was just a kid starting something with a lot of errors and mistakes and, and it was weird for me you know I, I felt it was too much and uh, and I also I didn't know what I wanted to do and I didn't know what how I wanted to sound uh, so I make this first record called Al Mismo Tiempo at the same time um, and it was a very uh, uh, visceral record a very naive in some ways but I mean, this record is more like a demo it has a lot of courage and, and it has a lot of energy and, and we 
we just did it, you know. We, we didn't think a, a, a lot about it and uh, we did it really quickly. Like in four months we had it and in four months we we applied for a, for a concourse mm -hmm. in Chile. Yeah, and, uh, and we won this, this thing. And then uh, the record and one song nominated to the Grammy. Like, so the people also, because this song was very political, I'm very. Uh, uh, it was a, it's a protest song. Yeah. Uh, so the people started to, uh, assimilating me and asking me, so being like um, a, a leader of opinion or or something. And so I felt like, uh, wow, I have to. Now I have to make a record for myself. So that's why I did Panal. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to translate that. Panal. Mm. It's a place where the bees be leaves. A beehive. Be yeah. yeah, that's the name of the. the beehive. Yeah. That's the name of the second record. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. That's, that's sorry. That's that's an interesting question actually. That you're you're saying that kind of. I mean, that's one thing we talked about before we started recording. The artists here are very kind of politicized, and mm -hmm. and you look at Pablo Neruda, you look at Gabriela Mistral, two mm -hmm. kind of Chilean poets. There are endless artists as well, Violeta Parra, Victor Jara. You know, they're, they're very kind of political figures in Chile, and that's something mm -hmm. that I think that's, keeps being the case nowadays. And I read that in 2010 that, you, that you, you'd said on stage, and um, <laughs> I think you know what I'm going to say, yeah. <laughs> that um, you're going to dedicate a song to those who believe they can buy everything with money, including a country. Yeah. And the context there, of course, was um, Sebastián Piñera, the current president's recent <laughs> election, so he's, he's now in his second term. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go too much into kind of contemporary politics, but how do you feel being like a role model in these terms? Do you... I think music is political. I, I mean, if, even if you don't want it, it's... it's uh, it communicates. It's a, it's a weapon... Of communication, and if you use it or not use it, you are also being political. If you use it to say something or to say just some superficial or stupid thing, mm -hmm. also you are using it like a political. I mean, so yeah, I I have different uh, states and emotions, and I think music is emotions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's emotional and. That's the place in the world that it has, you know, to communicate emotions. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm very, I'm very touched by political because I, I grew in a family that is very left-wing-sided, and mm -hmm. um, my my father fought against the, the dictature in the 80s, and they made this uh, audio, uh, these videos about the protests in the streets, and it was like um, clan. Clandestino, it was. Clandestino, yeah, secretive. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I I grew with this fear of him disappearing, you mm -hmm. know. Of I grew with this, uh, I don't know, it was very strange. Mm -hmm. With this uh, military imaginary, like, uh, we, we play a, a game with my cousin, like, it was called Pinochet uh, Asesino, like, uh, Killer Pinochet. Or, mm -hmm. So we used the brooms like we were we were having like pistols and yeah. and we kill military people and and then we we have a, a reality in Chile that we have a dictatorship for 18 years and the people is uh, still missing and the people and there there's no justice at all mm -hmm. so this is like an open wound which uh, nobody cares about. Uh, only the the ones who are 
in pain for this and and at the same time we are the most neoliberal country in Latin America and and I think it's terrible and it's pathetic and and I sometimes it gets me uh, too emotional so I have to write a song about it that's the that's the the road it, it takes inside me you know it's it's emotion that leads me to make politic or love songs it's the same it's the same uh, motor yeah uh, so for me it's not that that different uh, to make a love song or to make a political song or to make even a superficial song like speaking about any shit I, but the way the way it, it goes through me it's through emotion yeah. and so I'm just talking more about your inspiration then obviously where um, we're talking here on the, on the Chile's National Day where we're kind of you know, celebrating aspects of Chilean culture uh, and also the 11th of September was not long ago I mean mm-hmm. we've talked about kind of the, uh, the Chile's past and that was obviously the, the anniversary the 46th anniversary I think this year of um, the, the coup d'etat which brought the dictatorship in in Chile um, you know do you, do you kind of draw on these as kind of direct inspiration do you kind of take kind of uh, you know do you take the kind of elements of Chilean culture folklore and things and then the, the kind of protest that as well to, to make your music? Mm, I don't know if it's directly, but I, of course I, I take uh, some folk, folklore, uh, Chilean folklore, uh, because it's inside me, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I think folklore, the folklore is in the land, in the geography. I think if, if Violeta Parra sounds like it sounds, it's because of the the volcanoes and the mountains and the ocean and, and the desert and everything. You know? And I think uh, that's what I like about her and about all the poets and the artists in Chile. They are very punk and they are very uh, in the marginal, in the margins in the margins of society, and they are very radical. And this is what I I really I really feel similar to in in the in the passion in the way of being absolutely consumed by your art being absolutely burned by it um, so yeah but I and I like uh, taking some for example taking the charango or taking the cuatro some instruments that are typic, typical of Latin America and and putting them on some context where it could, can be more electronic or or more rock, mm-hmm. uh, because it's um, it's natural for me to do it because I grew with Violeta Parra and I grew with Bjork and I I grew with Victor Jara and I grew with Radiohead. You know, it's it's inside me. And so I mean, you talk there about kind of influences here in in, in Chile and. Something that you really is apparent when you listen to your music is it's kind of it's very rooted in in Chilean culture and you know mm-hmm. we talked as well before we started recording about you know you spent a year in London mm-hmm. uh, earlier in your life and you said it was kind of one of the happiest happiest yes. years of your life. Yes. I mean, do you think that your music kind of would translate if you kind of went abroad, or do you think it's almost kind of you know too rooted in the kind of the Chilean context? No, I don't think it's very rooted here. No. No, I mean Mala Madre. If you if you hear Mala Madre, mm-hmm. my my last work like I don't know it's 
it takes a lot of Florence and the Machine. It takes a lot of Debussy um, music in the in the strings arrangements. I mean, um, it's the same. I think is is the same way that Violeta Parra, for example, didn't only hear folklore or didn't only take these elements of uh, uh, countryside music. You know. It, Yes, she investigated and she recopiló, recopilar uh, all these songs, but she also she also listened to the Beatles and Bach, and you can hear this in in her music that she has other influences and she was open to the world. She was not like on her home only doing um, songs that refers to Chile and Chile because also Chile is a mixture, you know. I mean, we were invaded. Or Mapuches were invaded, but but by, by, by Spanish people, and then they mixed up. But Mapuches are still oppressed here, you know, not not by Spanish now, but Chilean people. So and they are di discriminated, discriminated, against. discriminated, uh, and this element of the folklore of the Mapuches uh, of the Mapuche music. Violeta Parra also took it, and she took it in a very, in a very intelligent way, which is the the, the need of the trance, you know, the trance, the the repeti the repetition on music. The, the, all indigenous music has it, the repetition, the repetition, and the repetition also because you need to to say it again because it it it, it is not healed. So. Um, I don't know. I went too far. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, I mean, just to talk about your uh, your kind of your what you're recording at the moment. So this uh -huh. is Pangaea or Pangaea, which is the kind of supercontinent which uh -huh. from which kind of all the continents came from, mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of like the basis of, of what you're talking about. And you, you said earlier it's a kind of multidisciplinary project. And yes. You've, you've done the kind of live version, which was volume one, which I mean mm -hmm. we'll we'll attach some links to the the show description so mm -hmm. you can. Uh, you can listen to it, but um, so can you explain kind of what the idea behind it was and what actually is kind of Pangaea or Pangaea? Mm -hmm. It's a multidisciplinary project uh, which is a documentary, uh, a double record mm -hmm. um, uh, on an object book, okay. a comic book, mm -hmm. and also a short movie, okay. a stop motion movie. So it has two two things that communicates like two two worlds two two continents like Gondwana and Eurasia yeah. <laughs> which one one is the music and the sensation that I had with my band mm -hmm. which was like wow my music is not longer only like a solo project we are now more like a band and a collaborative collaborative yeah, yeah uh, and um, this is why we record Pangea Volume 1 uh, because it's the sound of the band playing alive and how they or we interpreted this music that I did alone. Mm -hmm. So it's the expansion of the music and the possibility of being one continent with this island that we are like persons, mm -hmm. and, uh, like individuals getting along with through music so the music was no no longer only mine and it was very li liberating mm -hmm. and 
also uh, it was this need of of uh, take this um, songs that were nowhere mm -hmm. and try to to put it together and that's volume two mm -hmm. which is like this kind of thing that I really like for an archaeologist kind of mu archaeologist music mm -hmm. of my work you know and um, and the documentary is about these two it's the process of the band and the, and this concert we play a lot, we play and we recorded uh, in the in the in this record yeah and um, also my father when I was a little girl he told me this very fantastic and marvelous story about um, dinosaurs that meet um, a, a Mapuche child yeah. a little kid and they had adventures and we play all every night and we we really dive into this you know like uh, in this world that we created and it has elements of the Spielberg movie and it has elements of a never-ending story and the movies we like, we loved. My, my father is a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has all these elements of uh, also a, a Remy, the, the Kids of the Stars. And so I remember these stories and I took the, these memories and I made a new story so this is the the short the stop motion movie the short movie and it's the comic book uh, it's the more is how Pangea or this idea that my father seeded on my brain when I was five years old it became to reality and also in the documentary you can my father is the one who is making the interview okay so it's very much my relationship with him and how this uh, affects my music and how I, this is um, a thing we create all together and it's also like a very playful uh, necessity. So when, when is it going to be released, your, the second volume? If, if thank you. Now, in October. In October? Okay. Yes. And then you're going to go with, on a tour with it or what's the plan? Not really. Uh, the plan has, has changed. <laughs> In October, I'm going to. In a, no, it's not a tour. I have some dates mm -hmm. in in Valdivia, in Chillán, uh, in Villarrica, in Santiago. Yeah, but I'm I, I'm making new music that it hasn't. It's not about. It's not in the Pangea world. It's another project, another record, and it's going to be out on November. So Pangea, it's going to be closed, and it, I'm not going to tour because they are. This, it's not m new music for me, you know. Yeah. So I'm releasing this single, which came in November, and I'm very excited and I'm very afraid because it's very pop. Much more. The lyrics are much more superficial. Was that a conscious decision to, to kind of, you know, go down a different route or is it just kind of what, what came Not out? Not really. I was really, after Mala Madre, I really didn't know what to do. Mm. And then I did, I did this uh, really um, ambitious project, Panja, mm. and it was really hard to get the money to do it. So I'm still waiting for something to happen with the sh short movie, but I'm not going to wait all my life. Mm -hmm. And... And I, I changed my, 
my relation with life really because I I be became really uh, interested in queer in queer culture and in queer theories and philosophy um, and I, I felt in love with a girl mm -hmm. and this uh, makes me naturally make this new music I mean like I, I've never uh, have done did um, love music like when because I always did like a painful after how do you say it when desamor yeah the breakup the breakup yeah. the breakup part yeah. all my songs my love songs are like for after the breakup Mm -hmm. But now it's like I, I really like you. I want to kiss you. I want to dance with you. Mm -hmm. This is and also other things, you know. But it's the um, emotion of the falling in love for the first time. It was. But I I also broke up with her. So the 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 the, <laughs> the record has these two parts, mm -hmm. the dark and the light. Mm -hmm. It came from within you, I think. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brennan, thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, well, um, sorry for my English because. Please, it's been it's been brilliant. Thank you so okay. much. Okay. Um, yeah, I love to to speak in English, but I'm I'm not that fluent, so I I'm, I really apologize for the people who is hearing, and it's like oh she takes too long to say this. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. It's okay. incredibly difficult to get to your point in another language. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hello, it's me again. We've come to the end of this episode of Miradas, and indeed the end of this, our first season of the podcast, uh, and what dramatic finale it was. Uh, we had John chatting to Alex Schober, Latin America analyst at Ducker Frontier, uh, and a real guru, I think, in passing the runes uh, on Argentina's big election later this month, and what that means for the country's rather wobbly economy. I then dialed into Emilio M. Bruna, a tropical ecologist at the University of Florida who works mainly on the Amazon. And Emilio talked about the fires there as a symptom, really, of what's going on, the, the, the huge deforestation going on there, especially under Jair Bolsonaro, and the lasting impacts that huge cuts by Bolsonaro will have on Brazil's flourishing scientific sector. Uh, and then finally, John played us out with Camila Moreno, uh, a folk singer whose inspirations stretch across Latin America and back to the great female bards of 20th century Chile. Um, so thanks so much to our uh, eclectic bunch of guests uh, who are the reason we, we do this show. Uh, and a big thank you to everyone who's subscribed and rated us uh, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, um, shared us with their friends and, and given us feedback. Um, it's really much appreciated uh, and that all helps more people hear um, our amazing guests. Um, you can connect with us uh, as ever uh, on at MiradasPod or uh, MiradasPodcast.com. Our music is still by La Motivante and our logo is by Diego Complido. Uh, you can see them, more about them on our site as well. Uh, Miradas will be back soon. Uh, so until then, uh, from me and John, uh, ciao, cuídate, valeo, uh, and bye.